Today's passage is Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross, and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, the word of the Lord. This morning, we begin our Advent series for the year. Advent officially began last week, but now it's like in full swing. We have the Christmas forest behind me. <laughs> so that's, that's not our doing. And yeah, Adam was joking. It wasn't his doing either uh, because we share this building. Of course, we, we rent the facility. We never quite know exactly what decorations will be waiting for us uh, when we arrive, but this is, this is fun. <laughs> we'll be looking this year at Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11, the passage that we just read for the next four weeks. And I'm calling the series, it's there on the front of the bulletin, The Attitude of Jesus Christ. This is not a very original title at all. It comes directly from verse 5, which says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. So the point of verse 5 there, if you just think about it for a moment, it's pretty straightforward. The attitude of a Christian should be the same as the attitude of Jesus Christ. So what does that mean, attitude? Attitude could be defined as a mindset or a way of thinking, your practical disposition toward life. There's a definition I like. I think I have a slide for it. My attitude would be a settled way of thinking, my settled way of thinking and or feeling about someone or something, typically one that is reflected in my behavior or a person's behavior. So there's this connection. Attitude is not only the thoughts we have, but it comes out in our interactions and in our behavior. Now, before we start looking exactly at what the attitude of Jesus Christ is, I want to begin today's message and really the whole series for this year's Advent season by asking you a question to consider this month. And that question is, how's my attitude? That question can come across, I realize, as kind of like a parent talking to you like, watch your attitude, young man. Watch your attitude, uh, young woman. But I want you to consider this. If you could uh, use a word, if you could think of a phrase to describe your attitude as of late, maybe this past week, maybe in this season, what would it be? Would it be maybe hurried or, or harried? You're busy, you're going through your to-do list. Maybe it's a little bit preoccupied or self-focused or burdened or driven. You have a goal in mind. You're focused on something. Maybe you've been frustrated and a bit grumpy as of late. 
Or it could be on the positive side. Maybe you're hopeful and joyful and grateful. And that has characterized your attitude and mindset. Likely it's a combination of things. But if you could for a moment, and we're going to come back to this over the next four weeks. If you're taking notes, maybe just spend a second now and write down a word or a phrase or just bring it to mind. How is my attitude? In addition to this, there's something else I want us to consider before we dig into this passage. I don't want to be uh, that pastor, so to speak, that's always painting the world and the culture around us like with this negative brush, saying, it's it's such such terrible times, either the worst of all times. But having said that, and having said that there's a lot of good, there's a lot of things we can celebrate. There's a lot of common grace that God has shown and is showing in the world. I don't think I'm out of line in saying, and please, we're going to interact over this for just a second, uh, that by and large, the prevailing attitude, the dominant attitude in our culture right now is something like a me and my group first attitude. There seems to me to be a lot of suspicion a lot of distrust, quite a bit of disillusionment that there is this prevailing attitude of me, my rights, or me and my group's rights first. So here at the end of 2022, another question I'd like you to consider is what is the cultural attitude around us? Because, of course, that affects us. Of course, that seeps into our own lives. And I don't know what you think, how accurate I was in describing it. But it seems to me that's the culture we're swimming and living in. Now, with that in mind, we can ask, how do these, my attitude, the cultural attitude that we're living in, how do these things line up with the attitude of Jesus Christ? Well, what is the attitude of Jesus Christ? Let's jump right in. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 is like a bridge, and I know I don't have the previous context printed in the bulletin. It's like a bridge that points back to verses 3 and 4 and points ahead to verses 6 through 11 to answer the question. Verses 3 and 4, we already read these in our call to confession on page 3 in the bulletin. They describe this attitude. And verses 6 through 11 show us this attitude in action in the story Of Jesus. So, what is the overall attitude and way of thinking that a Christian should have in life? I know we've already read this, but we're going to read it again. It's in Philippians 3, or Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. In other words, to get ahead or to gain advantage just for yourself, or out of conceit. Conceit, thinking that you are better than other people or that you come first. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not to his own interest, but rather to the interests of others. We already sat with that for a moment in our prayer of confession. And it might be a bit convicting to ask you to sit with that again. Just look at that text again. How are you doing with this attitude? For the next four weeks, we'll be meditating on how verses 6 through 11 show us this attitude in action and the story of Jesus and the story of God becoming man, which is the story of Christmas. And we'll be 
looking at how the story of every Christian should mirror and take on the same shape as the story of Jesus in these verses. Which, for most of us, all of us, is a whole new attitude, a whole new mindset with which we approach life and each day and each relationship and each, each task that is before us each day. Maybe you could memorize these verses this Advent. Just a suggestion, that's what I'm going to try to do. So we're going to go phrase by phrase. This morning we're going to focus on verse 6. I've changed the title of this message, and here's the outline of the message if you want to write it down. The title is Our Attitude Toward Power. And in verse 6, I want to look at four things. Jesus' power. Jesus' attitude toward power. And then our power and our attitude toward power. So first, Jesus' power. This description of the attitude of Jesus in action begins here in verse 6 with this description of Jesus' power, which is a very interesting place to begin for a passage that is all about serving, that is all about looking out for others and the attitude of considering others first. We say power. What does power have to do with any of those things? Usually we don't associate power and people who have power with putting others first, with looking out for the interests of others, right? Does, do we put these things together? The powerful, who are the powerful in this world? Are they the, also the people who are putting others first? We've become pretty cynical and distrustful and disillusioned when it comes to power. You could think of political power. There's not a lot of trust and positive feelings we have when it comes to those who have political power. We could think of economic power. We could think of working for a boss like, I don't know, Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or whatever. Do you want to work for them? And how they use their power. And even spiritual power. So many examples of spiritual power being abused and used only to advance that person's own interests, often at the expense of other people. So I have this quote, and this quote is oft quoted, and it might especially resonate with us at this moment in our time and in our culture and when we're living. Lord Acton has this to say about power. He's a historian from uh, the late 1800s, early 1900s. He said, power tends to corrupt. You've heard this part. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. It goes on to say great men are almost always bad men. Even when they exercise influence and not authority, still more when you super add the tendency of the certainty of corruption by authority. I found it a little bit amusing that this is all coming from a man named Lord Acton. <laughs> you know, let me teach you about power and the corruption of power. Lord Kapoor, <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> Lord Vader or something. But what he's saying here is take any person, take any person, you, me, add power, corruption. Add more power, more corruption. Add authority, it gets even worse. And Lord Acton, if you look this guy up, he's a serious historian. He's got a lot of great things to say. This was his conclusion looking at history. And it kind of maybe seems right to us. 
makes sense. But according to the Bible, in this passage, Christmas is about taking a God, the God, with all power and with all authority, and this God becoming a man, and how he does something very different with power. Something unheard of. Look at verse 6. It says two things were true of Jesus before he was born. It says who, who, meaning Jesus, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. There's two things there said about Jesus. One, Jesus existed in the form of God. Form here means all the qualities and characteristics that are essential to a thing. So form doesn't mean like it just seemed like he was God. No, it means he had all the qualities and characteristics of God. And Jesus, secondly, was equal to God. Very clearly said. Some scholars would argue that these, this verse right here, these two descriptors, maybe the most important and maybe the most amazing statement we have about the pre-existent life of Jesus Christ. That this is what's being said about him. Before he was born as a baby in a manger, he was God. God has a lot of power. He is omnipotent. He is almighty. He is absolute in all his power. A lot of ways we could define power if we think about it as the capacity to act, the capacity to influence other people or affect reality. Then according to the Bible, Jesus' power was absolute and unlimited. And yet, Christmas, we say, here he is, a little baby lying in a manger. What is that all about? Now, there's a lot of ways to break down power. What it is, how it works. Here's how I want to approach it. Usually, there's this equation that works with power. Power equals position equals privilege. Power equals position or status, privilege, rights, and comfort. So... There's the slide. This is usually how it works. The more power you have, the higher the position you have in the world over others, and the more privileges, the rights and privileges you have. What this means here, what's being taught in verse 6, is that Jesus had all power. He had the highest position and status possible, equality with God. He had all the rights and the privileges to obedience, honor, and worship as God to get and to do whatever he wanted for himself. What would you do with this? What would you do with that kind of power? And we'll talk about this more next week, but this passage, as it moves on to the, through the story of Jesus, is not saying that Jesus lost his power as the baby in the manger. Like he was Superman and he came to earth and all of a sudden it was kryptonite everywhere. That's not the story. Jesus never ceased to retain his power as God. Jesus did not relinquish his power. So when you read and see the story of Jesus from beginning to end, you're seeing the answer of how did Jesus use his power. In our Bible reading plan, we call CBR, we're reading uh, as a church, we're reading through Matthew right now. Anytime you read in the Gospels and we're reading the beginning uh, of the book of Matthew, what's the most common reaction to Jesus? 
it, it is, I think. This guy has power. This guy has authority. But it's not the kind of power and authority we've ever seen before. You see all these instances that are all about power in the Gospels. Where people are saying to Jesus, Jesus, let's drive out the Romans. Let's get our oppressors off of our back and let's take control. You have authority. You have power. And Jesus says, no. Love your enemies. Jesus, let's make you king. We can really get things done then. No. My kingdom is not of this world. I'm not going to take office. Jesus, they're not listening. Let's call down fire upon them now. Which is what the disciples said. And Jesus said, no, and he rebuked them. Jesus, at your right hand, that's where I want to be. Can I sit there with you? Can I have that position? Jesus says, that's the spot for those who die for others. Jesus had power. More power than any other person who ever lived as the God-man, but he did not use his power like we would if we had it. Why? This passage answers that question. It's because of Jesus' attitude toward power. Verse 6, Jesus who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. There it is in the last phrase. He did not consider, this was not his attitude, same word back in verse 3 of chapter 2. In humility, consider others as more important. Think about others this way. Jesus did not consider his power, his position, his privilege as something to be exploited is what it says. Now, there is a lot of discussion about that little phrase. How do we translate it? What is it really saying? And I spent probably most of my study time just reading about this phrase or this one word. You might have a note in your Bible. You might have another translation in your Bible. Some translations read, he did not count it as something to be grasped as in held on to for himself, or grasped in the sense that he already had it, so he didn't need to take it, it's already his. The old King James says he thought it not robbery to have it or to take it, to take something that wasn't his, it wasn't robbery, it was already his is the idea. A lot of these translations emphasize that Jesus either, he didn't have to take equality with God because it was already his, making that point, or he didn't cling to his power as God, but he willingly became a man. All these things are true. But I don't think they capture the full force and the full meaning of the phrase and context like it's translated here in the version we have, the CSB. Because it's more directly about Jesus' attitude toward power. What this is saying is Jesus did not regard his equality with God as something to be exploited for his own gain or his own advantage. Jesus did not use his power for himself to get what he wanted for himself. Jesus did not use his position to exploit people or use people. Jesus did not come demanding what was rightfully his and all the privileges and rights he deserved as God. Two weeks ago, we looked at Genesis 3, if you were here with us. The story of, fall, of the fall. The story of the entrance of sin into the human heart. And the question that we were asking, why did Adam and Eve take 
the fruit? And the answer from that story was they were offered something. You will be like God. Equality with God. The Bible says that sin at its core is just that. It's the, de- the desire. It's us making ourselves the God of our own lives. Why do we want to be gods, to become gods? Because we consider e- the equality with God as something to be exploited, that we could have it and use it for our own advantage, to control our lives, to get the comfort we want in life, to have status over other people. Sin is, at its essence, the grasping, the taking, the trying to seize equality with God and to exploit it for our own advantage. And the effects of that are all the ways we harm, abuse, and misuse one another. All the pain and broken relationships that this causes. Starting first with our relationship with God. Because sin is, in essence, trying to dethrone him. This passage is saying that at the core of the gospel, at the very heart of Christmas, is Jesus not considering equality with God as something to exploit. Why did Jesus become man? We could say it's because of how he considered us, his attitude toward us. Jesus' settled way of thinking and feeling about us that was reflected in his behavior towards us. Let me phrase it like this. Another question I want you to consider. What is God's attitude toward you? How do you think God is thinking and feeling about you? At your worst. In your sin and need and brokenness. The answer that this passage gives us is, it's here in the story. Look to Jesus. You'll see. If you believe this passage describes God's attitude toward you, it changes everything. He loves serving you. Can we say that about God? He considers you so important that if you need something, if you're hurting, he wants to lift that from you. He takes on our humanity So he knows and he understands your hurt. He understands your temptation to use power for yourself. And though we try to take his place as God, he took our place. Dying as a man for us. This is Jesus' attitude toward power. Use it to give, not to get. This Friends, isn't this a Lord we can follow? Isn't this a Lord we can submit to and trust? Isn't this a power that we can trust? Jesus, who did not consider his power as something to use to get from us, but to give us what we could never get for ourselves. That's the gospel. That's Christmas. The one who died for us will never exploit us. So at his name, we gladly bow and confess He is Lord, and we let him shape our lives and our stories to look like his. So let's talk about that. 
the final two points, practical points. How does this apply to us practically? If this is the gospel, the heart of the Christian faith, this is what Christmas is all about, what difference does it make? Let's apply that to our attitude about power and position and privilege. When I say those words, I don't know what you're thinking. Power? I don't have a lot of power. I'm just like a regular person out here in the world. I don't think I have a lot of power. And I think power is kind of like money. We always look at people who have more than us and say, I don't have much. Look at that millionaire over there. Look at that billionaire over there. They got a lot of money. I, I just have, you know, just a meager amount. Power. I'm not the president. I'm not the CEO. I'm not the captain, whatever it might be. But we all, to some extent, have some capacity to act and influence others. We have a capacity to affect reality, some of us more than others. But to apply verse 6 to our lives, first we have to see the power we do have. So friends, as Christians, we need to admit, I do have power. And not only that I have power, most of us have more than we realize. Power, position, privilege. I mean, think about an infant. Even an infant has a lot of power. They will cry and they will scream until they do what you want or you do what they want. That is power. That's capacity to influence other people. In our families, at work, in school, on our teams, in our groups, friends, here at church, we have power. Here in Orange County, we have a lot of power. Isn't it true that we spend most of our lives trying to get power? Isn't that true? Succeed? In school, in college, in your career, why? <laughs> to advance in having more capacity to act, to influence my reality, to have more position, to have more privileges and comforts, and a lot of us have succeeded very well. So to deny the power and position and privilege we have is almost the same thing as saying, I don't see it because I want to use it all for myself. It's like if you have millions of dollars in the bank, but you never check your balance, right? You don't know what, I don't want to know what's in there. It's not in there. And someone asks you, can you spare a little to help? No, I don't, I don't have enough. Sorry, I don't, I don't know what's going on in my checking account. Um, I don't have it. The answer is then check your balance. You'll never give unless you first do. So many of the conversations about justice and reconciliation and the struggles we have in having those conversations, racial justice, economic justice, social justice, any of those things, we get stuck. They don't go anywhere. They stay theoretical like ideas and arguments because the people with power are unwilling to see it. But as a Christian, we are called to see the power we have, to see the power we have been given. Which leads me to my final point, our attitude toward power. This is not saying to us, have a negative attitude or always critical attitude towards power. That power is bad. Jesus did not have this attitude. He didn't have a negative attitude toward power. He just had a different attitude toward power than anyone else has ever had. And here's the attitude. I think I have a slide. Whatever power, position, and privilege I have, is not for myself, 
for me to enjoy and use and take advantage of, exploit to my benefit for myself and my family alone. It's for me to give, to share, to serve, and to use to lift others up. A few more specific examples of what this might look like. First, in our attitude towards seeking power. I've already shared that we live in a culture whose dominant story is get more power, you'll get higher position, you'll have greater privileges. Isn't that the purpose of life? Isn't that what it's all about? Isn't that what's driving us toward success? From a young age, this is the story we are given and we are told we should live. Get status, resources, wealth, influence, rise up, move up, get comfort, get privilege. But there's a paradox that is very clearly seen and observed about our culture and others. As power, position, and privilege go up, for some reason, so does anxiety, depression, and unhappiness. It's a complicated thing as to why. But this passage is telling us a very different story. So I'd like to put a proposal out there for you to consider that in part, and please hear me, I'm saying in part, our struggles with emptiness, anxiety, meaninglessness is due to our pursuit of this empty glory and story. That all the power, all the position, all the privilege we can get in this life is for ourselves. So keep earning it. Keep, keep it for yourself. Keep growing it. The Bible says this is like striving after the wind. You have it, but nothing's there. We have lost the reason and story why we have been given the gift of power, which is to bless, to give, to serve, and to find the joy of God in giving. Earlier on in this chapter, Paul says, make my joy complete. Live into this story and I will rejoice. And remember, Paul himself is in prison. He did not have to be in prison, but he said, I'm actually rejoicing here. And there's a way for you to find this joy. Has everything to do with your attitude towards seeking power. He said, I have joy in using the power I have to, to serve, to give for the glory of Jesus, and you can have that too. Secondly, our attitude toward the abuse of power. The abuse of power, unfortunately, has a very long and too often frequent in the history of the church and in the church now. How do we make sense of it? People using their power to exploit others who said they were Christians, who found ways to justify their abuse and exploitation of other people by quoting the Bible. How do we make sense of it? We know it happens. The history of slavery, racism in our country, it's mixed into the story of colonialism. And there's stories of pastors using their position to abuse other people. What do we say? We can say, according to this text, the most anti-Christ attitude we can have is using Christ to get position, power, and privilege and exploiting people. So we have to call it out and we must grieve it. 
We must guard ourselves against it. I must guard myself against it. We must show sorrow and repentance and watchfulness that this would never be us. Last, our attitude toward seeking power, our attitude toward the abuse of power, and final thought, our attitude toward where the power really is. The temptations of Jesus were all about power. Use your power, Jesus, to save the world in this way. Make bread. Turn the stones to bread. And you'll have the world at your fingertips. Prove your deity. Jump down from the temple and wow the crowds. Take over the kingdoms of this earth. And Jesus said, no. I'm using my humility to save the world. I'm using my weakness as a servant. So friends, why do we think it works differently for us? If we have a problem, a situation, if we want to make a difference and solve the issues of our lives and our world, we say, I need the power for that. I need control over that. I need mastery. Give me a prayer to pray so I can fix it. Give me a book to read. Give me theology that's going to work. Give me a thing to do. Give us the right laws. Give us the right leaders who are at the top of the political hierarchy. Give us the right celebrities. Give us the biggest auditoriums. Give us the conferences. Friends, why do we think it works differently for us? Christmas teaches us that where the power is, where the action is, is not where we think it is. It's in the manger, not on the throne. Jesus left the throne. And that's where the power for the redemption of our lives is. And the power for the redemption of all things. Often when we think God is calling me to do something about something in the world. He's giving me uh, these dreams and visions to do something great. We often say there's a lot of big things. Like I'm going to start this huge effort. I'm going to have this huge conference. I'm going to do all these big dreams and big things which is fine, but we always have to ask ourselves, is that about the glory of Jesus or is it about the position, power, and privilege I can get from those things? And so I want to close by asking you to dream of the manger, not of the throne. That's where the real action is. Be content with the manger, which for a lot of us is very much like a manger, changing diapers, taking care of a little one, feeding and nurturing life, giving yourself away to the people God has put closest to you. The whole passage and the whole thrust of this text is telling us the action is not in the Oval Office. It's not on TV. It's not in the news. It's not where those who have the most followers or views are. It's in the hidden places where people in the name of Jesus are using their capacity to bless, to love, to consider others more important than themselves. That's where the action is. Let's put this attitude into action ourselves and let's ask the Lord to give us grace to do so. Would you pray with me? Jesus, How thankful we are that you did not use your position, your power, all your privileges only for yourselves. Because if you did, 
we would be lost. We would be in darkness. And we would not know the way out. And so I ask you that as we consider what our attitude is, I pray that it would sink deeply into our hearts what your attitude is towards us. That you would drive the doubt away if it is there in anyone's heart of whether they are important to you, of whether they matter to you. I pray you would drive the doubt and distrust away in our hearts that anything you ask us to do would not be for our good and ultimately for our joy. We thank you that this story is true. We pray that this would be the story that shapes our lives more and more. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we